Hello, and welcome to the MEMSA Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast. I'm Fergal Leonard, a member of the MEMSA community here at Durham University. Our speaker today is Connor Huddleston, a PhD researcher at the University of Bristol. His research uses modern social networking software to explore the people and the politics of the Tudor Privy Council. He has a fascinating paper for us today, which we're sure you're going to enjoy. Hello. I just wanted to start by saying thank you to the MEMSA team for inviting me onto the podcast. It's a real privilege to be able to share my research with you in this way. So I'm going to be talking about social networks and cultural consciousness among historical groups and how they can shed light on the relationships of historical communities. My approach makes heavy use of digital relational databases and prosopography to trace these connections. It's going to use the example of the Tudor Privy Council, as this is my area of interest, but, is, but it is my contention that this approach could be adapted for other groups. Tudor politics is often characterized as bloodthirsty, cutthroat and factional. Most modern observers view the Tudor elite as a group of ambitious and duplicitous individuals whose primary concern was their own enrichment and aggrandizement. From Showtime's The Tudors to Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, the Tudor court's popular image is as a place of political intrigue and factional struggles. And while some historians have questioned such a model, the historiography of Tudor politics is still set in a factional frame. This paper questions the premise that animosity and rivalry were the defining features of the Tudor elite's interactions. Instead, it argues that the Tudor elite were more bound together by shared characteristics and common outlook than scholars have previously appreciated. It does this by investigating Privy Councillors' backgrounds and relationships to reveal connections that transcended political allegiance. When individuals are set within this context, it becomes harder to divide them into ideologically opposed camps. Rarely have historians considered such personal factors when constructing their political narratives. And when they do, they focus on individuals rather than looking at networks as a common feature. In this paper, I will firstly outline how I've used prosopography to identify groupings and trends within the Tudor Privy Council, highlighting in particular the growth of university educated councillors, the decline of bishops and the emergence of new noble families. And then I will explore a particular group of men identified through these techniques in more detail and discuss the implications for factional political narratives. To begin with, I will briefly outline the prosopographical method and how I have used it in relation to the Tudor Privy Council. Prosopography is a form of collective biography which investigates the common characteristics of a group of historical actors. It does this through multivariate analysis which means tracking multiple variables across many individuals in order to better understand the group as a whole and the interactions between its members. This type of inquiry is only possible because of the advent of modern computerized databases and digital cataloging software. In this way, it presents a new method for studying, for studying historical groups and communities and facilitates different interpretations of well-trodden fields. I constructed a relational database using Microsoft Access of all 320 Tudor Privy Councillors. 
This database contains all the main biographical information relating to each councillor. A digital relational database can be searched and rearranged in endless combinations. Thus, it is possible to run queries quickly on multiple factors without altering the underlying data. The trends and patterns revealed through these queries inform us about the makeup and nature of the population being studied. They also reveal new groupings that were previously invisible to historians who were concerned only with individuals or narrow time periods. By sorting the whole data set by university attendance, it is possible to see that 89 out of the 320 councillors spent at least some time at a university. The numbers of university educated councillors remained relatively stable until the reign of Elizabeth when they made up the majority of the council. However, these figures only tell part of the story. And if we remove from the calculations bishops who were required to have a degree for their religious role, another pattern emerges. It now becomes clear that university educated lay men significantly grew in number across the period and that bishops were eliminated from the council entirely. The elimination of the clerical component of the council had a significant impact on the relations between councillors, which unfortunately there's not space to discuss here. Thus, this approach allows us to chart the extent to which the university educated layman became the dominant archetype of councillor. Sharing an educational background and experience was in turn likely to facilitate closer relationships between councillors. They would have been exposed to similar ideas and ways of thinking, which likely shaped their worldview and values. Such connections are strengthened when the individuals were contemporaries at a particular institution and forged social relationships in that context. Using the database, it is possible to generate a query that shows which university each councillor attended and when, and what office they went on to hold. For example, by running a query that identifies all of Henry VIII's bishops and the universities they attended, we can see that five men who would become bishops and councillors were all contemporaries at Magdalene College, Oxford. Leaving aside Cardinal Wolsey, who died in 1530, Bishops Lee, Stokesley, Longland and Vasey were all active during the break with Rome in the 1530s. They are often characterised as conservatives, but their actions during the Reformation suggest that such a reductive label does not tell the whole story. It is true that the four bishops often displayed a liking for traditional Catholic religion. They opposed the omission of four of the seven sacraments in 1537, demonstrated a belief in the intercessory power of prayer and vigorously pursued Protestant heretics. However, they were also forceful defenders of the royal supremacy and the break with Rome. Historians often point to self-preservation or politicking to explain this contradiction, maintaining that they were members of a conservative religious grouping. However, an alternative explanation can be found in the humanist curriculum to which they were exposed while students at Magdalene College. This humanism emphasized that the church had fallen below the standard expected and thus required radical reform. The royal supremacy presented a chance to implement these reforms and so support for it was entirely consistent with humanist principles. The numerous commissions and diplomatic assignments on which these four men cooperated throughout their careers 
was more likely to, to be the result of their good working relationship honed since their university days and their shared values rather than an attempt to coordinate a conservative strategy. Thus, by attempting to force these clerics into a conservative religious faction, historians have missed the nuance of their theological beliefs and overlooked their social connections. Another factor that sheds light on the relationships between councillors is their social rank. If the total number of noble councillors is plotted against time, we see that the number of nobles was greatest, perhaps unsurprisingly, when the council was at its largest. However, if we adjust the data to separate out noble titles created by one of the Tudor monarchs from those noble titles which were at least a generation old at Henry VII's accession, a more interesting pattern emerges. While Henry VIII relied heavily on nobles of ancient lineage in the first half of his reign, from 1536 onwards, he elevated a cohort of men who would become the dominant noble contingent on the council. Indeed, further analysis of this pattern enables us to identify one group of eight men who illustrate the ways in which networks were important. Additionally, this group of men seem often to have operated as a collective, not for political or ideological motives, but more as a network of mutually supporting friends. I will use the remainder of this paper to explore this network in more detail and show how its existence transcended political groupings. These men were Anthony Brown, Anthony Wingfield, Charles Brandon, John Russell, William Fitzwilliam, Arthur Plantagenet, Thomas Cheney, and William Kingston. At Henry VIII's accession, all except Anthony Brown, who was nine years old, were members of the royal household, either as gentlemen ushers or esquires of the body. These positions involved intimate service of the monarch and the office holders would have had daily contact with the king and each other. It should also be noted that when the Privy Chamber became an official sub-department of the household, these men were among its staff. Russell and Cheney were gentlemen of the Privy Chamber from 1516, Brown from 1519, and Plantagenet from 1526. In addition to their professional activities, the men were also members of the king's circle of young jousting companions. Most were between 19 and 25 years old at Henry's accession. Kingston was slightly older at 33 and Plantagenet older still at 37, but both men were active in the tournaments and court revels of the 1510s. All eight men were mentioned in the revel accounts for 1516-1517 as participants in court entertainments. Brandon, Fitzwilliam and Kingston took leading roles in jousting tournaments in both years and were given apparel by the Master of Revels. In addition, Fitzwilliam, Russell, Brown, Brandon and Cheney were present for celebrations at Greenwich in 1518, in which the King granted them gifts. Their professional activities, at the very least, created a rapport between them, and their social interaction likely fostered a friendship. During the 1530s, these eight men moved into senior leadership positions within the household and government. In 1539, Cheney was treasurer of the household, Kingston was comptroller, Wingfield was vice-chamberlain, and Brown was master of horse. Russell had been comptroller since 1536, but was elevated to a baronage and succeeded Fitzwilliam as Lord High Admiral. 
Fitzwilliam, meanwhile, became Lord Privy Seal and Earl of Southampton. The new post of Lord Great Master was created for Charles Brandon, who was to have overall control of the royal household. Thus, by 1540, all three household departments, chamber, hall, state and stables, were controlled by members of this network. Individuals in this group also held two of the executive offices of, of state. Fitzwilliam was, was Lord Privy Seal and Russell was Lord Admiral. Brandon straddled the two groups as Great Master and Lord President of the Council. As a consequence, moreover, all were members of the Privy Council and represented seven of the 19 members in 1540. As a result, these men controlled access to the King and at the same time constituted the largest component of the Privy Council. Importantly, they did not operate as a political party with a specific agenda. Instead, their interactions are above all characterized by their mutual support. Of course, most of the time, these men would have spoken with each other on a daily basis, meaning that key elements of their interactions are largely lost to the historian. But Arthur Plantagenet's appointment as Deputy of Calais in 1533, which necessitated his absence from court, provides a rare insight. In particular, the dispatches of John Hussey, Plantagenet's agent at court, shed light on his relationship with his friends. The sense of a, of a network of mutual concern is revealed by a stream of letters sent by Hussey in 1539, which detailed the whereabouts and activities of other members of the network. Plantagenet was particularly concerned to hear about Fitzwilliam's health, who was ill with an infected leg at the time. He wrote four letters between the 7th and 31st of January, all of which mentioned Fitzwilliam's health and movements. Furthermore, these were men that Plantagenet trusted to further his interests and who were in a position to assist their isolated friend. Several of them acted as commissioners for property Plantagenet was pursuing and acted as intermediaries with other influential court figures, such as Thomas Cromwell. They also provided direct support, such as in April 1539, when Hussey wrote that a certain Mr. Hare had been spreading evil rumours about Plantagenet at court, but not to worry because his friends, Kingston and Brown, had intervened with the king on his behalf. It is significant that Hussey actually used the word friends and that Brown and Kingston took it upon themselves to defend their friend's reputation. We can get a further sense of their relationships from the way they personally interacted with each other. One aspect of this was the exchange of gifts. In the 1530s, Fitzwilliam and Plantagenet exchanged multiple gifts, including foodstuffs, wine and money. Fitzwilliam is also recorded sending a ready-baked buck to Plantagenet's wife, Lady Lyle. The families of the councillors were a fully integrated part of the network. The delivery of the previously mentioned gifts was discussed in letters between Lady Lyle, Lady Brown and Lady Fitzwilliam. Furthermore, these three women were in contact with Anne Bassett, a lady-in-waiting to the Queen, who was also Lady Lyle's daughter from a previous marriage. This suggested a coordinated effort on the part of the wives to gain advancement and favour. Similarly, Mary Kingston asked Lady Lyle to be a good friend to her son, Henry Jerringham, 
and to help him find a horse when he visited Calais with Fitzwilliam for the formal reception of Anne of Cleves. The relationships between their families presumably further strengthened the connection between the councillors themselves. A further aspect of their relationships was the provision of hospitality. Prior to Anne of Cleves' arrival in Calais, Plantagenet laid on a lavish welcome for Fitzwilliam and his party. An observer claimed, the deputy and his officers have continually feasted the Lord Admiral and recorded that they had organized a jousting tournament in his honor. A lavish reception such as this might be expected to mark the arrival of the prospective queen, but this event was a week before. It seems highly, highly likely that this was simply a reflection of the genuine enthusiasm for the arrival of an old friend. The personal connection between Fitzwilliam and Plantagenet was reinforced by a letter of the 22nd of October, in which Plantagenet sought Fitzwilliam's fashion advice. This was in preparation for a visit to court by Plantagenet, and after so long in Calais, he wanted to make sure he arrived in the latest court fashion. Incidentally, it was Fitzwilliam who facilitated this trip to court when he obtained a license to return for Plantagenet and sent the deputy of Calais money for the crossing. A final connection between these eight men worthy of mention was their membership of the Order of the Garter, England's most prestigious chivalric order. All eight men were members of the order by 1541, apart from William Kingston, who was elected in 1539, but died in 1540. All members of the order were linked together by an oath of chivalric duty and brotherly affection. New members of the order were elected by sitting members. All eight men were recorded voting for each other on several occasions, such as in 1540, when Brown was elected with, the votes, with votes from Fitzwilliam, Russell, Cheney, and Kingston. And then in January 1541, when all surviving members of the network voted for Anthony Wingfield. They were also often seated next to each other during chapter meetings. The fact that they often voted as a block suggested a coordinated campaign to elevate their friends. In conclusion, the existence of this network had not previously been noted before the analysis of my relational database. But as this case study has shown, the network constituted a coherent and powerful group within Tudor government. They were connected by a shared background and social relations and significantly did not possess a coherent political agenda or ideology. They used their relationships and positions to benefit other members of the network and displayed genuine affection in their interactions. It is also important that there is no hint that these arrangements were overtly transactional with no recompense or return immediately expected. This group was based on friendship and loyalty rather than politics. And this is by no means an isolated example. In my PhD as a whole, I am seeking to demonstrate that by analyzing the characteristics of Tudor Privy Councillors as a collective, it is possible to identify new patterns and groups that transcended factional classifications. The overall impression is that similarity and cooperation were just as common, if not more prevalent than animosity and discord. Prosopography facilitates a different reading of the sources that focuses on groups rather than individuals. It is my contention that this is a more fruitful way of approaching the study of politics as group dynamics and social cohesion lie at the heart of human interaction. By understanding the makeup, overlap 
and interaction of the different groups within Tudor society, we can better understand the Tudor polity as a whole. Thank you. Hello again, I'm here with Connor to discuss his paper. Uh, Connor, thank you so much for sharing some of your findings with us. Uh, it's really fascinating how you're using modern tools to gain new insights into well-studied areas and to reshape our understanding of the dynamics of the Tudor court and its politics. And I also really, really appreciate how it allows you to bring in informal networks of friendship and support, encompassing families and so on, rather than focusing on these big personalities and conflicts and tensions and so on, which has uh, more often attracted historians' attention. So thank you very much for all this. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here uh, and share some of my findings with you. Um, as you say, it's a new approach to a well-trodden field, so hopefully we can have an interesting discussion uh, and shed some new light uh, on this period. Yeah, and well, you've already started to shed some new light, so you found the existence of this network of allies, this group of friends, which had previously not really been noticed or remarked upon by historians, uh, Brown, Winfield, Brandon, and so on. Why do you think they've escaped attention so much? Um, I think uh, a lot of it has to do with the way that uh, politics in this period is traditionally conceived of. Uh, so it's traditionally um, written about as quite adversarial, factional, uh, obviously, um, and this group of people are not really bound at all by any sort of political allegiance or ideology. Um, and so I think it, it's gone under the radar a little bit because um, they're basically a group of friends who help each other out uh, when they can. Um, uh, and they don't seem to be allied with one group or the other. Um, I, I think uh, uh, something that there wasn't time to speak in the paper, it, was um, a, an example of uh, Thomas Cheney and John Russell, who traditionally have been assigned to uh, different sides in the factional or so-called factional dispute between Cardinal Wolsey and Anne Boleyn. Um, and all the evidence for this, uh, this division, this opposition, comes from one incident over Cheney's marriage to John Russell's stepdaughter. Uh, and there, there clearly was some sort of dispute there that even dragged in Henry VIII and had to tell them both to basically uh, calm down and get on with each other. Um, but this incident has been used by various historians to show that Russell was on Wolsey's side and Cheney was on Anne Boleyn's side. But I'm not convinced. Um, I, I see it more as just a, a personal family dispute over uh, money uh, and over the marriage of a daughter. Um, if, if we look at their relationship beforehand and afterwards, there, there's no evidence that they disliked each other or were taking opposing views. Uh, and indeed, after this incident, when they supposedly disliked each other, um, they served together in Henry VIII's later wars. Uh, and Russell even took the time to write back to the Privy Council and to his friends in London that Cheney's son had died in a siege and wrote in very personal terms um, about the death and how he was personally upset about it. And then when Cheney died in 1558, he made sure to leave money to Russell's widow and son. Um, so 
it doesn't really seem like a, a deep-seated ideological opposition to me. Um, and I think that's just one example, but there's lots of that between this group uh, who have been associated with different sides in the factional uh, debate. Um, but really, uh, they seem to, to just pull together and help each other out when they can. Yeah, there's definitely a danger of trying to interpret everything through what we already know about the period and trying to fit people neatly into one side or another, when mm -hmm. of course the truth, it seems, is just so much more complex. And that's one of the things your network can, uh, can, can, networking can bring out so well. You use the term ideological at the end of your answer there, and you highlight in your paper how the alliance you found wasn't bound by a common agenda, it wasn't aimed at achieving particular goals, and it wasn't transactional. Could you expand on the significance of this and how this might change our view on Tudor politics? Yeah, um, so I, I think it, it goes back to uh, just reconceptualizing Tudor politics. Um, so ideological, yeah, is a dangerous word um, uh, in this period, um, whether or not that ideologies existed. I thought I use it it, use it in a very loose sense um, in that two groups were opposed to each other rather than, than they um, had any sort of codified ideology. Um, and I also should stress that I think I, I'm not trying to say that there's no factional dispute. There's clearly incidents in this period uh, when uh, intrigue is rife within the Tudor court. Um, my point is more that these were short term uh, and responses to events. Um, I think that uh, sometimes uh, historians can uh, assign more significance to some of these groupings than actually uh, is borne out by the facts. Um, for instance, there's a lot of talk of noble factions bringing down Wolsey and then later Cromwell. Uh, but I have a hard time uh, finding any sort of socially ideological element to any of those um, any of those uh, disputes. Um, I, I, uh, people talk about Wolsey's arrogance, for example, and how he rubbed the nobility up the wrong way. Um, but he's a cardinal, then a legate. Um, I think that it's well known that the, the English uh, churches mainly promotes non-nobles to be bishops. And then if he's a, then a cardinal, archbishop, all the rest of it, I don't think nobles would have had a particularly difficult time um, providing the respect that is due to that position. He's due that respect um, because of his position in the church, not because of he's a, a butcher's son or whatever. Um, so I don't see any sort of social uh, ideology uh, in the, the um, dispute to bring him down. Um, Cromwell's a bit of a different um, different castle of fish. He is clearly low-born and he doesn't have the the church to cover him there. Um, we might talk about him a little bit more later on, um, but uh, I think with with him, it's uh, it's more of a, a working relationship that I, uh, that happened before his fall. Um, these um, uh, supposed ideological enemies uh, were working well with him before. Uh, he fell from power. So again, I see it more as a short-term factional conflict that brought him down. Um, and I think when we, when it comes down to it, uh, these are some canny political operators 
working at the highest level here. So I think when they see an opportunity, uh, a weakness, uh, they they do pounce or uh, occasionally they pounce to bring people down for their own benefit. But um, I don't see it as uh, as a long-term factional, factional thing. Thank you. That's uh, really, really interesting. So your paper highlights the importance of links of friendship to people at court and how people utilize the language of friendship. Could you expand on this idea of friendship in an early modern political sense? Does it mean exactly what we'd understand by the term friend today? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it means exactly what we mean today, although the rhetoric of friendship is really important in this period, in, in politics especially. Um, writers like Erasmus and Castiglione talk about friendship extensively and how it's important to be a good friend uh, and qualities of a good friend. Um, and the word friend and friendship crops up a lot in correspondence between privy councillors. Um, but it's difficult to ascribe, it, to know how much to ascribe to, to using the word. Obviously, a lot of these letters are looking for favour or patronage, so you would expect them to, to use words like friend. Um, but I, I still think it shows a level of... Um, it uh, shows a connection between people that, that goes deeper than a professional level a lot of the time. And you have to look for actions uh, as well as just using the word friend. So hosp- I, I mentioned in the paper, hospitality, gift giving, all shows a, a level of uh, affection that goes beyond the professional. Um, but just the nature of the sources makes it really difficult because it appears friendship is to be, friendship appears to be a bit more formal than it does to us today, but that's only because of the nature of the sources that survive. In a letter, it, everything appears more formal. Um, but how these people interacted on a daily basis, um, we we don't really know. Um, we, we can, I think it's likely that if you work together with thirty years with somebody uh, and you can't find any trace of incident in any of the correspondence or records, then they probably were quite friendly if they're seeing each other nearly every day. Um, occasionally, you, you do hit a gold mine as a historian and uh, you find a letter where people talk about each other in really close terms. Um, there's a letter between uh, Cardinal Wolsey and Bishop Longland and it's an exchange of letters and they talk in detail about their various ailments, uh, the, the, the problems that they're having with their health, um, uh, and uh, exchange recommendations on remedies. I think that's quite shows quite a level of affection. And then later on in the period, with William Cecil um, and uh, Nicholas Bacon talk about the plans for Christmas. They're going to spend Christmas together. Their families are going to uh, uh, enjoy the festivities. So again, shows a level of affection. But those kind of references are quite rare, unfortunately. So it's just the job of the historian to piece it together from what we do have. So we've just talked about a language of friendship and what we mean by that. Do, you, do the records you look at also use a language of enmity? Do they talk about their enemies or unfriends at court? It is uh, rarer to, to have explicit references to enemies and opponents in what I've looked at. I think that's probably to be expected that if you... If you were someone's enemy, you probably wouldn't write it down. Uh, not in this, the kind of records that survive, because obviously a lot of the, the correspondence is from government officials. So, um, 
yeah, it's a difficult one. That uh, I, I think that a lot of um, uh, sorry um, ambassadors' reports have a lot of that kind of language about opponents and um, enemies at court, but they should be taken with a pinch of salt because we, we all know how unreliable the ambassadors could be. They could be being fed information. They could just not understand English culture. Um, so outside of those, it's difficult uh, to find any reference to enemies. And even not just the, the contemporary ambassadors, modern historians sometimes uh, misinterpret or appear to misinterpret some of the language used Um an example was uh, Bishop Stokesley uh, during the divorce crisis talking about Cardinal Wolsey's colourable devices. Um, some historians have said that that's an anti-Wolsey statement, whereas others have said it's not. It's just talking about the divorce in general terms, um, uh, and there's no hint that he's any an opponent of Wolsey. I would go along with that, just judging on the the long-term history of the two bishops. Um, that they appear to get on really well from all the evidence that I've gathered. But that's just an example of how it's sometimes difficult to interpret what we've got. So you make much of how the similar backgrounds of these different privy councillors promoted concord and collegiality between them. Why didn't the differences between these different groups create, well, factional, if that's quite the right word, conflict between different parties within the privy council, those who shared different backgrounds and different experiences? Yes, that is a very good question. And uh, I've left myself wide open to that accusation because, uh, yes, there were, there were different groups there. Um, I think it was uh, slightly different, though, and it changed across the period. So I think early in Henry VIII's reign, I think there, there probably was a little low-level hostility between the old ministers, old bishops of Henry VII, and then those bishops who gathered around Wolsey, uh, and the young uh, boon companions of Henry VIII who were on the Privy Council. Uh, I imagine that the, the elder statesmen saw themselves as the responsible administrators, and then the king's companions were the brash rabble-rousers. Um, I don't, again, I don't think that was necessarily factional. I just think that's just a result of a different culture, different upbringing. So maybe there was a bit of hostility there. Um, but I think um, the other uh, difference that gets talked about a lot is between new Tudor service nobility, as some people call it, and then the old ancient nobles. Um, and I think that this distinction, it has been overblown and is negligible. Um, it's well established in England by this point that the monarch can create new nobility and monarchs did that quite regularly. Um, so there's not much hostility from ancient nobles themselves. I, I can't detect much hostility from them themselves. There seems to be a, uh, a sort of uh, rebel literature of um, protest literature that talks a lot about base-born, low-born people entering the nobility. But in terms of detecting actual hostility from the established nobles themselves, um, much less. So I think that's not as uh, significant. Uh, and we also need to remember that these new nobles become old aristocracy very quickly. They establish their own dynasties. By the time we get to Elizabeth's reign, uh, I don't think anyone's questioning uh, the legitimacy of a Dudley, for example, to be uh, a member of the aristocracy. 
Um, I think England is quite unique in that regard. There's a lot of European monarchies where nobility is a sort of an entrenched class that's quite hard to break into. But in England, I think it's much more fluid, the movement between upper gentry and nobility. So uh, I think that difference is um, is not as important. Um, and then I, I mentioned uh, Elizabeth's reign there. And I think that as we progress through the period, by the time we get to Elizabeth's reign, the differences are very small indeed. The Privy Council is full of men with a similar background, mostly university educated. Um, the, the membership is very is also small, um, and most of them are tied together by family connections, by marriages or wardships of uh, children. Um, and so it's almost like a family gathering, some of the meetings, because everybody's related to everybody. They would have known each other. Um, so I, I think that those differences do become less as the period goes on. So we've already brought up figures like William Cecil, Thomas Cromwell, Wolsey, who stand out from the pack a little bit in terms of their social climbing, at least to an extent. They rise to these incredibly influential, preeminent positions despite their relatively low social standing. Um, and you might assume they shared less in some ways of the same experience and background to some of their colleagues. How do they fit into your model of the Privy Council? Yeah, so I think there are some exceptional individuals Cromwell, uh, Wolsey, Cecil, yeah, definitely exceptional. Um, but I, don't, I think the idea of them being low-born, uh, I don't think that's as uncommon. It, it's not common, um, but I don't think it's as rare as we imagine. Just because of the dominant position of those in, of, of a Cromwell, we think that he's unique. But other people like Edward North and John Russell, they're not as low-born, but pretty low-born, basically have merchant fathers when you get down to it, and they rise incredibly high. Um, uh, I think that the we toy, the term gentry is obviously very wide, and some some councillors' fathers were provincial merchants, as I just said. Um, so uh, I don't think the, the low-born aspect is uh, quite as significant as we think. And again... It, the Tudors picked the people that they thought were useful to them. So I think as long as the, the monarch bestowed favour on somebody, that's the overriding, the overriding factor. And it's not just about low-born uh, people being appointed to Privy Council. Um, there's also those people who were lower gentry or maybe a little bit lower than that who were raised to the peerage in one step. Charles Brandon, for instance, goes from no title to Duke in one step. And similarly, uh, well, there's a bit of a gap. No, so yeah. Um, but basically, Ray, Ray rose from gentry all the way up to the top when we're talking year, like in the space of a year or two. Um, and then William Fitzwilliam, also a similar journey to Earl from low standing. Uh, we've already talked about uh, Wolsey um, and low-born men in the church being very common. Uh, that was the traditional way to rise high if you uh, weren't a member of an influential family. Um, uh, and I think Wolsey really embodies that. Uh, so, yeah, as I said, his position as cardinal overcame any social deficiency in my eyes. And he sort of, with that position comes an expectation that you have a certain ostentation, a certain prestige about you. So 
again, I think that the the arrogance and the greed angle may be overstated sometimes. Um, and then I, I mentioned about the service nobility, um, and I think there is something in that, um, that Henry VIII does create some sort of new breed of aristocrat. Um, so people raised under Henry VIII, uh, they or their heirs go on to dominate the council in the later period. So Dudleys, Parrs, Russells, Careys, all from by, by one degree or another trace their origins to Henry VIII. Um, and so I, I think that he is responsible for a lot of the dynamics that come later on. And then finally, with um, in regards to uh, the, these exceptional individuals, we need to think about the type of domination they had over the council and whether it um, would have uh, w- would have irked some of the traditional nobility. So Cromwell, quite uh, an administrative domination, principal secretary, Lord Privy Seal. Um, I don't see how um, someone like the Duke of Norfolk would have been resentful of that kind of position. Um, I don't think he would have wanted to do take on that burden. And unfortunately, council meetings, we don't really know what was discussed at many of them. We only have a summary of what was decided. So it could very well be that if you're on the council and in the meeting, your voice is heard. And just because you don't have the position of somebody else, it, it doesn't matter as much. Um, uh, and then along alongside that, something that I want to explore further um, later on in my research is the idea of uh, the nobility's role in leading armies uh, and the military, uh, because these low-born men that everyone talks about um, and uh, say dominate things, um, there, there's no question that Cromwell was ever going to lead an army. Um, and so that he sort of uh, excluded, and obviously Wolsey is a, a a cardinal, uh, as in the church wouldn't, um, but they're sort of excluded from that arena, which is obviously a massive part, especially of Henry VIII's reign. Um, so oh, I'm interested if there's any resentment the other way, if they resent because of their their low social standing or position, uh, that they can't, that they're, they're just excluded from that side of things. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting dynamic as well. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And raises so many questions of how elite culture changed over time and noble culture changed over time in response to and as part of evolutions in how governance worked and the roles these individuals played in governing early modern England. This has been absolutely fantastic, Connor. Thank you so much uh, for your fantastic answers to our questions. Thank you again for your really, really interesting paper. Your project just sounds amazing. Um, it sounds like it'll really tell us some really interesting things about early modern political culture in general. And as you say, it can be used as a model for future studies of similar kinds. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Um, yeah, and I hope that uh, my research can help other people and hopefully the database I've created can be made freely available so other people can exploit it and uh, find even more trends and patterns uh, than I found. Well, thank you. I'm sure all of our listeners will be uh, watching your 
uh, for any pu uh, future publications. And as you say, if your database ever is made available, I'm sure there's a lot of people who'd be really interested in exploring that. So thank you very much again. you've enjoyed this episode of the MEMSA Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast series. To find out more about MEMSA's activities, follow our Twitter account at Devon MEMSA or find us on Facebook by searching for Devon MEMSA 2021 to 2022. You can also email memsa.committee at devon.ac.uk to be added to our mailing list. Thanks again to Connor for his excellent paper and thanks to you for listening.